guys may be wondering, why would I start today's sermon with a video like that? And there's multiple reasons why. First of all, Mike Lacona is one of my favorite apologists. His work on the resurrection is bar none, some of the greatest work out there. He was trained under Gary Habermas, and he helped lead Nabil Qureshi to, to the Lord before he passed away. And be, If anybody knows who Nabil Qureshi is, he's a great apologist himself, converted from the Muslim faith as, uh, as, an, as, as a, a faithful Islamic follower for his entire life. To Christianity. So that's the first reason. Second, this video is an excellent display that the discipline of apologetics is similar but unique to the discipline of exegesis. And so they are similar but unique as disciplines. And so what we need to recognize is that good apologetics, like Mike Lacona just did, is interdependent on solid exegesis. And the third reason, well, that's going to become clear as I preach the sermon. If you're here with us for the first time, I just want to say welcome. My name is Matt Oberlander. I'm one of the pastors here. And on behalf of Associate Pastor Brent Dunlap, the decision-making board, and all of the people who call this church home, we're glad that you're with us today. We recognize you could have been anywhere in the world, and you're here with us. So for that, we're thankful. Now, the church is going through a sermon series on the book of Jonah, and uh, if you recall last week after I finished the sermon, I said we were going to take a two-week detour, a two-week detour where we were going to study typology and the differences between absolute prophecy and conditional prophecy. This is week one of that two-week detour. Why are we taking a detour? It's part of the series, don't worry. It's going to help us understand the book of Jonah better as we continue through it in just a couple of weeks. So that being said, why don't I pray and then we'll dig into our study this morning. It's all right, let it fall. We'll just pick it up when we do the Bible reading. Father, thank you for this morning for what it is that you communicated to the church body through Brent and through Stephanie. I pray your blessing on them for their faithful obedience to be humble and to come before you and to ask what it is that you would have them say to the sheep of your flock. Father, as I prepare to speak, I pray the same thing. Lord, help me to be humble. For we are only elevated by your mighty hand. I pray that anything that I would say, Lord, would... Just fall to the wayside if it's not of you. But all of the things, Father, that are said, that are guided by the Spirit and spoken in submission to him, I pray that it would pierce our hearts. We know that your word is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we ask that you would, as the great surgeon and physician, perform whatever needs to be done on us today, Lord, in the cutting away of what is not good so that we can heal and be restored and live healthy whole lives as we strive to walk in the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, our topic is typology. Everybody say typology. typology. The root word is type. Okay? This morning, our study is on the topic of typology. As you can see on the screens, 
we have two questions. What does it mean? To answer question number one, we are going to have to wrap our heads around a working definition of the term typology. Once we do that, we can move on to asking and attempting to answer question number two, what is its function and its purpose, i.e., how does typology function in biblical interpretation? The purpose is clear so that we might understand God's word with a clearer, deeper understanding. Amen? So we're going to begin our study this morning by asking the question, what is typology? In their book, Biblical Doctrine, Richard Mayhew defines typology as an actual historical event or an actual historical person that in some way symbolizes or anticipates a later occurrence, particularly within biblical studies, an Old Testament foreshadowing of a New Testament event or an individual. Now, Dr. Heiser has some really helpful thoughts on the topic of typology. He notes that typology is unique within prophecy. It is so unique that it's literally unrecognizable until the event is transpired. Now, it's safe to say that Eve had no idea who the seed, the future offspring, would be that would bruise the head of the serpent. If Eve had no idea, then the author of Genesis and the audience of Genesis had no idea who the future seed would be. But then time transpires and Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene and he lives the perfect life. He willfully lays his life down. He dies on the cross and three days later he takes his life back up, proving his power over the very thing that was the consequence of the fall. And by taking up his own life and proving his power and authority over death, all of a sudden, it clicks. Wow! The event has transpired. Jesus of Nazareth must be the seed of Eve who is going to bruise the head of the serpent. We can take the same way of thinking and we can apply it to Genesis chapter 15. God made a promise to Abraham. Who was the son of promise to Abraham? It was Isaac. It was not Ishmael. It was Isaac. However, Paul writes in Galatians that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. So we have the prefiguring or pre-shadowing event that happens, and then we have the later future event that escalates in nature, proving itself to be the greater fulfillment of what once was known or understood. Amen? That same way of thinking can be applied to the future prophet that Moses speaks about in Deuteronomy. It can be applied to the suffering servant in the scroll of Isaiah. We're talking about typology this morning. Anglican theologian Michael Byrd writes that Jesus' life and ministry rehearsed several patterns or types from the Old Testament, which we just saw a few examples of. He states that typology is a hermeneutical approach to the text of Scripture that sees in persons, events, or places the prototype, pattern, or figure of historical persons 
events or places that follow it in its time. So consider the tabernacle. All right? We're looking at this next slide that's going to come up, and we're going to see the tabernacle. Here we have a real place. Everyone can see that it was a physical tent that took up real space in real time, and we can say this with confidence because this comes from the, histor the historical archives of a real nation of people. Amen? In the Epic of Eden... Dr. Sandra Richter writes that of all the types coming out of the Old Testament, few are as important as the tabernacle. As we look at this slide and as we read the text on the slide, I want us to consider the words of the beloved disciple who wrote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled in our presence. And we have seen his glory, John writes. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now think about this. Why was the tabernacle constructed? The tabernacle was constructed because since the fall, God had not dwelt with creation. He had not dwelt with the pinnacle of his creation with humanity. There had been a fracture in the, in the relationship. Now, hold on. Everybody's going to go, well, there was appearances. Appearances are different from dwelling with your people. There were conversations, dialogue, communion. There were sacrifices that he participated in. There was covenants that were made. Those are different than dwelling with your people. The tabernacle functioned to centrally locate the presence of God in the people of God. Anybody know what that cube was called in the tabernacle? The Holy of Holies. Jesus comes on the scene and God in Christ becomes accessible not just to the priest once a year, but to everybody. Everybody. Think about the Samaritan woman at the well. Think about the Syrophoenician woman. Think about Legion who lived in the Decapolis. Think about the Roman centurion whose daughter was healed. In Christ, God became available to all people. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. He is not far off. He came to us so that we could go to him. If time were not an issue this morning, we could discuss the sacrificial system in Israel. In fact, we could go all the way back to the very first Passover event. And then we could reflect on the words of John the baptizer who refers to Jesus as the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What did the lamb function to do in the sacrificial system? It's blood covered and atoned for the sins of Israel. What does Jesus' blood do? He's escalated, right? The perfect sacrifice. There's no longer a requirement for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs because sin has been conquered once and for all, Hebrew says. Amen. And we are clothed in that righteousness. Amen. So based on what we've just learned, everybody, on our survey through the text, 
It's my hope that these illustrations are bringing the literary device of the type and the anti-type to life as we survey the text of Scripture. Is our working definition coming into focus for everybody? Is it beginning to take shape in our minds? I need to know, yes or no. Are we understanding? Okay. Having answered question number one by assigning a working definition to the term and understanding how it functions, we may now move on and attempt to ask and answer question number two. Does anybody remember question number two? If not, I'll remind you. What is the function and purpose of typology and biblical interpretation? To answer this question, I just want us to get real practical this morning. So we're going to read two portions of the New Testament, and as we're reading them, I want us to ask ourselves, was the application of typology standard practice in the first century? So I need two readers. I'm going to ask Tom and Dasha to read this morning. I need some good readers. These are longer portions of the text, so you're going to need to turn in your own Bibles and read along because the text will not be on the screen. Uh, Tom, come on up. You read Luke chapter 24 verse 13 through 27, and Dasha, you're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 11. Let me see if I can get this thing to stay. If not, I'll adjust it for you. Should be good there. All right, so before Tom begins to read, I want everybody to get there. Luke, chapter 24, verse 13 through 27, and here's the deal. I just want to set the context of the statement, all right? Jesus has just died, three days have passed, and the tomb has been found empty. Scene. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all of the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Thank you, Tom. Did we hear it, everybody? Right there, I want us to start with verse 26. Now, Mike Lacona taught 
us in the opening video how many times Jesus referred to his own death, which means that it was part of Jesus' teaching ministry to equip his disciples to know that he was going to be put to death at the hands of the Jewish leaders. But it wasn't just that that he taught. He also taught that he was to be raised from the dead on the third day. Now look at verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the who have spoken? All that the prophets have spoken. Verse 27, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's go back to that slide that has all of the verses on it and the two little triangles real quick, Kyson. Can you imagine walking on the road to Emmaus? with the creator and the sustainer of the world, and he's doing a Bible study with you, and for the very first time, he's like, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus, if you keep reading, they're like, maybe, 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 <laughs> but we're not sure. So it seems to me that the master is comfortable in his own teaching ministry using typology to say these things in the Old Testament that were spoken long ago are fulfilled in me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 11. Let's do it, Dasha. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 11. I'm reading from the ESV. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, when, uh, then the, to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to the untimely born, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of, but the grace of God, that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Thank you, Dasha. Did we hear it? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the what? With the scriptures. Now, when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, only two New Testament letters had been authored the letter of Galatians, and then 1 Thessalonians. And these letters were not in circulation yet. Enough time had not passed. These letters that he had written to the church in Galatia and the church in Thessalonica were not in circulation, and no gospels had been written yet. And Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. What's he preaching from, everybody? From the Old Testament. He's got to be using typology. This prophetic word spoken long ago, bam, filled in Christ. 
that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the what? With the scriptures. Look, the Jewish mind doesn't function like our modern minds. They're not worried about direct quotes and citations and footnotes and reference pages. They're okay with understanding the meta narrative and speaking generally to the three day references that are mentioned in and throughout the entirety of the scriptures. So when you hear a rabbi like Tovai Singer say, he can't have died and been raised again in accordance with the scriptures, you say, no, 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 no. You're a Jewish rabbi, bro. You know better than that. You don't take it that wooden anywhere else, so don't take it that wooden this place. You guys use generalizations, and you understand how idioms work, and you know language. It's your language. So don't put a special rule on Jesus and apply a general rule to your Old Testament text. Amen? That's how you talk to somebody who is going to spread lies about an incon- with an inconsistent hermeneutic from the Old to the New Testament text. And we love our Jewish brothers, but they need Jesus. You got to read their material and you got to watch their lectures so that you can unravel their ball of yarn, Okay? Otherwise, you're going to be like, oh, man, I don't have a direct citation of, you know, three days and three nights. What am I going to do with that? It's easy. Use the culture that produced the Bible to deal with it. How about that? Yeah. So you have the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then you have what's referred to as the Tanakh, the entirety of the Bible, where you have the wisdom literature and the prophets. You have um, the Deuteronomical history, which is like 1st, 2nd Samuel, which is just one book in the Jewish Bible, 1st, 2nd Kings, which is just one book in the Jewish Bible, and 1st, 2nd Chronicles, which is just one book in the Jewish Bible. So you have like the Torah, which is the first five books. Some people refer to the wisdom literature and the prophets, but the Tanakh in It's all-encompassing. So that's what it means. And here's the thing. Theologians argue, like, how long was the walk to Emmaus? Did he give them every single example? Or did he just point to a majority of them and begin to teach them, this is how you can read and interpret the Scripture? That's up for argument. You guys pick 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 a side of the line. You can say, the Bible says all, therefore it means all. Well, then you better apply that everywhere else. That's my first word of warning to you. Or you can just say, Jesus probably knew best what he was doing, and Luke records it in a very conversational and understandable way for us. What's up, James? Yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of words that the Hebrew people apply to their scriptures. Remember, it's not written to us. But it's for us. It was written to them. They're the intended original audience, and so we need to honor them, okay? All right, so we're bringing typology to life. In an attempt to keep it practical, as we're trying to answer question number two, I think it's safe to say that we've just seen how both the master and the apostle Paul, who was a trained Pharisee at the feet of Gamaliel, they were comfortable using typology to unpack the prophetic text of the Hebrew Scriptures in light of the events surrounding what? The life and ministry of Christ. So if you want more data, this is for the note takers. Write down Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 41, and Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 40. And in these passages, you will see the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Philip utilize typology to evangelize the church 
in its very earliest stages. Amen? Amen. Now, having discussed what typology is, I want to make a quick mention of what typology is not. A type is not an allegory or a symbol. We need to understand that these things are distinct from one another. Now, allow me to explain. In the conquest narrative, the two spies that Joshua sent into Jericho to spy out the land, they tell, they tell Rahab, tie a scarlet cord in your window. If you do this while we invade, then you and your family will be saved from the coming destruction. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people like to argue that the scarlet cord is a type, that it points to the blood of Jesus that was shed to save humanity from the coming judgment. There's just one problem with that. The text actually tells us what the cord is for. So at best, one might argue that the scarlet cord is symbolic, or they could argue that it's an allegorical representation of the blood that Christ would shed one day, but they cannot argue that it's a type. It does not qualify. Remember that a type is an event or a person in one era of redemptive history that has a specific parallel, an antitype, in another era of redemptive history, okay? Yep. So having answered both of our previous questions and offered an example of what typology is not, I think we're ready to focus our attention on both of the gospel accounts where the prophet Jonah is mentioned. So let me read the text. Yeah. Um. Typology always intentional. So that's a question that is continuing to be argued to this day. Okay. It is very difficult to like categorize like the church fathers went all over the map. You know, they had full-blown allegorical and symbolic interpretations of the gospels. You know, not just the parables, but the gospels in their entirety. Um, there are different cultures that interpret the text in different ways. So typology should be understood as a, a form of a literary device. And then, like, it should excite you to read the Bible and be like, wow, I don't know that I've ever seen this before. But it's not Gnosticism either. It's not mystical interpretation that the Spirit of God has to give you some holy download so that you can see it, so that you can give it to the rest of the body. That's not how it works either. That's Gnosticism, and we're not Gnostics. Okay? There's a term, um, it's theological speak, and uh, it refers to the clarity of Scripture. Uh, the perspicuity of Scripture is the theological term. And you have to be careful with terms like that. Because just because what the Scripture teaches is clear doesn't mean that what the Scripture teaches is easy to interpret. Okay? So we have to hold all these kinds of things in tension with one another. So that's a, that's a question where, like, if you believe you find a type, begin to talk about it, you know? And then if somebody offers you some counsel and says that that's more like a symbol or an allegory, then maybe shift your position or continue to hold it in light of that agreement or disagreement. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we don't want to hold these things with, like, a uh, high level of dogmatism because that can create division, Okay. There are lots of different ways that people interpret the scripture. We just need to be aware of that. Our goal is to be as faithful to the text as possible, okay? All right. So a type is not an allegory or a symbol. 
So like I said, we've answered both questions, and we've offered an example of what typology is not, so now we're ready to look at the Gospels. Joe has mentioned in two of the four Gospel accounts, you can even argue that he's mentioned in Mark, but he goes without saying if you're looking at the same account, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered the synoptics, and then John is unique in their midst. So here's the deal. Luke writes in chapter 11, starting in 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of who? Jonah. The sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be assigned to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's interesting to me how the master, in his life and ministry, both before and after the cross, was comfortable using typology as a way to interpret the text of the Hebrew Scriptures. However, we cannot forget that typology is unique, and therefore the anti-type, the event that Jesus is describing, it would be unrecognizable until after it transpired. So don't get all uppity that the people in the text didn't believe Jesus. When you get up and get the people in the text that didn't believe Jesus, it reveals that you've already forgotten about the two disciples who were faithfully following Jesus, walking on the road to Emmaus, that didn't recognize him and couldn't understand the scriptures for themselves. So everybody's in the same boat here, all right? Now when you look at verse 29 in Luke, on the screen... I'm going to show the correlating passage in Matthew's Gospel. That way we don't uh, have to tackle them separately. We can tackle these passages simultaneously, okay? So obviously if one says more than the other, we're going to do our best to deal with it. So, can you guys read Luke's passage for me out loud, please? When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign. Matthew writes, starting in verse 38, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Matthew's a little more detailed here. You see this? Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered and said, Teacher, that sounds respectful, but is it really? We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. In the opening verses, in these passages, we need to recognize that they do not function as a commentary on the depravity of humanity. Jesus rebukes those who were present, and his rebuke is contextual to what's taking place within the narrative. <laughs> New Testament scholar Walter Wiesel writes that the request for a sign was posed to test our Lord. In essence, they were laying down the gauntlet. Now I want you to ask yourself, did Christ fold in the wilderness when he was facing off with Satan? No. Do you think he's going to fold now? No. <laughs> no. 
Of course he answers no. Now we should love to study passages like this. I know that I do because in them we learn that it's not within the character and the nature of God to compel allegiance by means of a spectacular sign. Jesus is looking to be in an authentic relationship with the willing. He's not going to force anything on anyone, and he himself is not going to be forced to do anything. His life and his ministry was enough then, and it's enough now. So for those who truly want to believe, participate in a relationship now. Because, because Jesus was being tested he was not responsible to concede to their demand for a sign. It's like we can hear Jesus now. He said, bro, you want a what? You want a sign? Uh, the only sign you can expect from me is the sign of Jonah. Everybody was like, what? And Jesus was like, Psh. Can you guys read this next passage out of Luke, please? For Jonah became a sign Matthew writes in verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Can we see the distinction that exists in the use of typology between these two authors? Because it's there. New Testament scholar R.T. France writes that both Luke and Matthew developed their ideas differently. And when you put the text side by side, you can see that. Luke is cryptic. He simply states that Jonah will become a sign to the people of Nineveh, while Matthew decides that he will use an explicit, historical, yet typological parallel via the motif of three days and three nights, which Luke does not do. Walter Lightfield notes that in the Gospel of Luke, the sign of Jonah is Jonah himself, whose presence and brief message though minimal compared to the preaching of Jesus, triggered immediate and widespread repentance. In regard to Matthew's Gospel, both Claire Chrissy and Robert Gundry agree that the sign of the prophet Jonah is tied specifically to the event of Jesus' death and burial. Whereas Jonah had emerged from the belly of the fish, so Jesus would emerge from the heart of the earth. Different authors, different audiences, Sometimes that requires a different focus. Regardless of the similarities, as modern students of the text, we need to be ready. Saints, we need to be ready to identify and acknowledge the differences when they exist. Because they exist. Can you guys read this next passage from Luke for me, please? Matthew writes in verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now you may be wondering, well, why does one side talk about the queen of the south, and why does the other side talk about the Ninevites? Well, in Matthew and Luke's gospel, they decided that they would reorder who came first in their gospel account. 
So instead of putting them both side by side, because they say the exact same thing, I had you guys read Luke's account of the Queen of the South. You can look at Matthew's gospel, it's the same. And I read Matthew's gospel on the men of Nineveh, and you can look at Luke's gospel, and it is the same. So I just wanted to make sure that you guys were clear so you weren't feeling like, well, wait, why is Matt doing this? Is he trying to pull the wool over our eyes? No, I'm trying to honor our time today. Now, the Queen of the South is probably better known to us as the Queen of Sheba. In modernity, many legends and highly embellished accounts have become popular among the Arabs, the Jews, and the Abyssinians. Where's TJ? Bro, you just listened to a Gnostic book and it was how long? Hours, right? Yeah. Yeah. So TJ just listened to the Testament of Solomon, and it is a book that is a legend or a highly embellished account on the life of Solomon that deals with his interactions with the Queen of Sheba, right? So there you go. Somebody in this body just a couple weeks ago came to me and was like, oh, have you heard this? It's wild. And I was like, send me the link. I got to check it out. But what does this teach us? Well, it teaches us, it's an attestation to the widespread knowledge of the event, historical and current, and to the international interest it has created throughout history. Now, this may be the reason both Luke and Matthew decided to include her in the narrative. If we were to read 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1 through 13, or 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1 through 12, then we would see that she came to test Solomon. It was only after finding out that he was an agent of Yahweh that she decided that she would enter into an alliance with him in Israel. And this event was signified by the mutual exchange of gifts in the text of the Old Testament. Are we seeing the similarities here, everybody? <laughs> she showed up to test him. <laughs> What's crazy to me is that Jesus' audience consists of the people of God, while Solomon's audience, the Queen of Sheba, was a foreigner, and their responses were drastically different. What about the men from Nineveh? William Barclay argues that the Ninevites recognized God's warning to Jonah. The Ninevites recognized God's warning to Jonah. But Matt! <laughs> Matt, in sermon number one, you taught us that neither the sailors nor the Ninevites turned to Yahweh in faith. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Have you ever heard me say that when these types of questions arise, it's vital to keep reading? When I used to do difference makers at the last church we were a part of and we came to moments in the text like this and there were unanswered questions, I used to look at the guys and be like, keep reading, dingus! <laughs> you remember? When questions like this arise, one of the best things you can do is you can keep reading. Now before we do that, I want us to ask ourselves one question. Does this text of Scripture anywhere teach that humanity will participate in the final judgment at the great white throne. Some of you may be thinking, well, this might imply that. <laughs> However, we must remember what the Apostle James writes, that there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Hmm. 
I find it very interesting that the target audience of the book of James was written to the church in Jerusalem, to a bunch of Jews in the first century. So let's keep in mind what James says. One lawgiver, one judge, the one who's able to save and the one who's able to destroy. And the warning or the, um, the uh, word of, uh, um, exhort, not exhortation, what is it? The word of rebuke, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's keep that in mind as we continue to read what Matthew writes. Let's go to the next slide. I'm going to read. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. You know how we know to continue reading this with the previous section? Well, first, there's no chapters and verses in the original manuscripts. And second, he uses the same general term, this, or phrase, this evil generation, which is exactly what he called them when he was talking to them about the Queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh. This wicked and evil generation demands a sign. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to keep reading. Totally. Yep. Go back even further and they blame his signs or his power to accomplish the signs on Beelzebub, son of Satan. RGV Tasker writes that the authentic repentance may be regarded as a kind of exorcism. Look at the text. Are you dead in your trespasses, a slave to the prince and power of the air? Are you walking in the ways of the flesh and the world when you're born? So authentic repentance may be regarded as a kind of exorcism for which it involves an expulsion of the demon of self-centeredness. However, if turning to God away from the sinful ego, which, by the way, constitutes true repentance, is to be something more than a temporary phenomena, the exercised man must be possessed at once by a new spirit. Otherwise, the demon will return, reinforced to occupy his old home once again. Saints, do we understand that the spirit of the living God must take possession of the penitent if they are to grow in holiness? There's no other option. Tasker goes on to challenge us. He says, think about the people who repented as a result of John the Baptist preaching. He goes beyond that. He says, how many responded to Jesus' call to repentance, and in the end, how many of them fell away? Think about the scene where Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. How many of them ended up turning their backs on the Messiah and leaving him because it was a hard teaching? God is not interested in a partial form of repentance. He's interested in authentic repentance. But you would be surprised that God, who is omnibenevolent, would even extend mercy in the midst of partial repentance because he is patient, willing that none should die. 
So this is my argument when it comes to the sailors and the Ninevites, everybody. To include the Queen of Sheba. In reality, the text offers no data that these groups or individuals ever turned from their pagan ways in authentic repentance to Yahweh. R. Kendall Solon observes that while the book of Jonah makes it clear that the mariners learned to fear and worship Yahweh as the great God of the storm and the sea, it gives no indication that they gave up the worship of their native deities. Most strikingly, he writes, the object of Nineveh's belief in repentance is not identified by the personal name of Yahweh, but rather consistently by the appellative name Elohim, which can be described in the, as the, it can be ascribed and described of the plurality of gods, the B'nai Elohim, who have rebelled against Yahweh, fallen from his divine counsel. So like the sailors, these Ninevite pantheists, that's what they were, would have no problem crying out to another god by another name. Why? Because it's standard practice within their culture. Saints, <laughs> Learning to read the text in its context is a discipline that is developed over time and it is never done in isolation. In our study through the book of Jonah, we've learned that it requires navigating both the genres of narrative and poetry in the same book. While today we were introduced to the reality of typology and its importance, the book of Jonah is so much more than a children's story, y'all. In the context, condemnation that's being described in Luke 11 and Matthew 12, falls, it falls more in line with what's referred to as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Throughout the scriptures, these terms portray rage in anticipation against judgment, which in my understanding means that we should view these different groups and individuals as condemning one another as they await the wrath of God. Let me explain. It's like the Queen of Sheba looking at Israel and being like, I only had Solomon, and he may have been the wisest man at the earth for his time, but I only had Solomon. I only had a human. And Nineveh and the sailors would look at the Queen of Sheba and turn and look to Israel and be like, Israel, we only had the prophet Jonah, and he had to come to us. You had the Messiah, the God-man, and he came to you. And Israel turns to both of them and says, shut up, what do you know? And they just continue to weep and gnash their teeth as they await the coming judgment and the wrath of God. It's my humble opinion that this fits the category of typology in a more consistent and contextual manner than seeing these groups or individuals as somehow participating in the judgment that unfolds at the great white throne of God. This may not be the popular evangelistic perspective on the book of Jonah. The sailors repented, y'all. Nineveh repented, y'all. Come to the altar and take a knee and pray. Yo, that works. I'm not saying you can't interpret the book of Jonah like that. That works as a way to preach it. But I think that's a low-level hermeneutic, yo. I think that's a child's Bible story, yo. And we're dealing with something that is much more than a children's story. 
This may not be the popular evangelistic perspective on the book of Jonah. However, I think it's the most textual perspective that comes when one applies the discipline of exegesis. We should not strive to make the text say whatever we want it to say. We should learn to submit to what the text teaches in its context. Even when you don't like it. Even when it's not easy. Even when it goes against years and years of traditions and you've only been a Christian for about 11 or 12 years and there's going to be a whole bunch of churches going, that's not the way Jonah should be preached. That young Christian has no idea what he's doing. Well, I got scholarly footnotes in the text of Scripture in all of my references. Let's go. (laughs) So what's the big takeaway from our time together this morning, everybody? It's not about how to win an exegesis battle. That's not it. If someone wants to preach Jonah that way, Praise the Lord. The Spirit hopefully led them in their preparation and they preached Jonah faithfully, right? We don't have to be dogmatic about these kinds of things. It's not like it's a false interpretation. It's not like they're trying to skew the kingdom of God. They're trying to build it, yo. But this is what I think the big takeaway is. Listen up, everybody. I want you to look at me. If you have yet to turn your heart to God, as a minister of the word, I need you to understand that God is not interested in your partial repentance. He will have it all, or he will have none of it. To those who believe, Paul says, test yourself. Do our lives reflect the testimony of the Queen of Sheba, the sailors, or the Ninevites? If so, we have fooled ourselves. And it's only a matter of time before the demon returns, reinforced to occupy his old home once again. My advice to both parties would be the same. Repent and turn to God. Pledge your loyalty to Christ alone. Because when you do that, I promise you can begin to watch your life change as the spirit of the living God takes up residence within you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the literary device of typology and how we can see you in the pages of history. Thank you for the faithful preachers in the past who have preached Jonah both ways in an attempt to build your kingdom and feed your sheep, Lord. God, I pray that you would continue to work out in each of us our own salvation as we stand before you with fear and trembling. My prayer, Lord, is that we as a body would come to the text not thinking that we already know the story, but that we would come to the text wholly hungry and unsatisfied, waiting for you to feed us. We know that you have prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies, and we long for the day when we will eat with you. So my prayer is that our repentance is authentic, that our loyalty is unwavering, and that our desire to be in Christ as he is in the Father would drive us to cross the finish line so that we all may be one. 
as Jesus prayed in John 17, in Jesus' name, amen.